That was wonderful. You know, every year when we plan this service, we have to decide, you know, what the elements are going to be, and we do it months in advance, and Ryan Brasington came to me this year, and he said, okay, look, I'm planning to ask you to sing that song again. Is that okay with you? I'm like, are you kidding? I mean, I'm pretty sure. I said, look, I'm not sure that Christmas will come if he doesn't sing it. It might, but I don't want to risk it. So, um, so thank you. That was glorious. And Christmas is here, by the way, and here's how I know. This morning, I woke up with this spasming twitch in my right eye. <laughs> Seriously. And uh, so if it looks like I'm winking at you, if it's the right eye, I'm not. Um, Keep that in mind. But it's a crazy time of year. Uh, It really is. But let me tell you the part of it that I love. This part. This night. To gather here with you guys is in many ways the highlight of the year and the highlight certainly of this season, and it's my privilege to do it, and I hope that God blesses you for gathering with us tonight. All right, well, if you've been with us during the Christmas season, and I know that many of you have not, actually, that kind of adds to the night. It's sort of cool to see folks that I don't see all the time, and some of the out-of-towners, and the moms and dads, and people who come back into town, and so I know that many of you have missed it, but if you have been around, you know that what we've been studying together here at Rio are what's called the I Am Statements of Jesus. They are these statements, to bring you up to speed, in which Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the second person of the Trinity, who entered into our humanity on that first Christmas Eve, God made man, who then grew into a man and stood in the midst of our planet, of our sorrows, of our oppressions, of our injustice, of our problems, of our struggles, of our questions, of the death of this world, which comes in all different kinds. And standing here as God made man, he reached back into the pages of the Old Testament and he laid hold of what is perhaps the most significant name of God. He went all the way back to the burning bush, all the way back to a moment of oppression, to a moment of injustice, of slavery, of death in the land of death. He reached back all the way to the burning bush and that story of Moses and God where God is coming to Moses and he's saying, listen, my people, as you well know, Moses, have been in slavery and oppression and death for 400 plus years. It's all they've ever known, these people. Under the thumb of the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and I want you, Moses, to go back and to bring them out. I mean, I'm going to do it, but you're going to be my deliverer, my instrument of deliverance. And Moses, who finally figures out that God's not going to back off on this command, says, okay, I'm going to do this, Lord, but here's the thing. When I get there, these people are going to say, hey, look, who is this God that is able to deliver us from all that we've ever known and our fathers have ever known and our grandfathers have ever known and our great-grandfathers have ever known? Get the idea? From the thumb of the most powerful man of the world, who is capable of that? Tell us the name of this God. And God says, that's right. They're going to ask that. They're going to think that. They're going to wonder that. They're going to want to know my name. And that's when you tell them that my name, very simply put, is I am. That is God's memorial name, not just to their generation, but to every generation, to our generation. Jesus Christ, Son of God, second person of the Trinity, takes upon Himself flesh, enters into humanity, stands in the midst of our real world, and reaches back to that name and says, okay, I'm taking that name to me because I want you to know that's who I am. 
I am the invisible God made visible. I'm the intangible God made tangible. I'm the insensible God, meaning I can't access him through my five senses. I can't see him, smell him, hear him, taste him, touch him, God. I'm that God made sensible. I'm the incomprehensible God, and yes, even as a man, I am still incomprehensible. I'm the infinite God. How can you possibly, with your finite little mind, fully grasp me or even expect to? It's unreasonable. But I have certainly come to you in the most comprehensible form possible, standing here as a man. If you want to know who I am, that's who I am. And then he took that name and he attached it to all of these different concepts and images, every single one of which dealing fundamentally with the issue of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the bread of life. I'm the true vine who, as we've seen, gives life to the branches and brings forth life through the branches. It's called fruit. I'm the good shepherd who leads his sheep in the pathways of life. I'm the door who separates his sheep from destruction and death and eternally secures for his sheep deliverance in life. I am the light of the world without which there is no life. I'm that God and I'm all about life. That's what we've been talking about for four weeks as a church. But there's an aspect to each one of these statements that we haven't really drilled down on yet. We've touched on it, but haven't really drilled down on it. There is a little word that's actually ginormously huge that's contained in every single one of these statements that ties every single one of these statements together and then unites these statements uniquely, and that's a key concept tonight, to Jesus Christ as opposed to anything or anyone else. Do you know what that little word is? It's what the English teachers call the definite article, and the rest of us call the. It's the little word, the. It's a very important word. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He doesn't say, I'm one of the resurrections and one of the lives. I'm a form of resurrection. I'm a form of life. Hey, if what you're looking for is somebody who has the power to bring life out of death, I'm an option. It's not what he says, is it? He drops right to the bottom line. He says, I am the resurrection, oh, and by the way, and the life. I love that. I'm a bottom line person. I love that. If I'm walking down the street and from some odd reason, I don't know what time it is, and I stop somebody on the sidewalk and I go, hey, can you tell me what time it is? Here's what I don't want. I don't want to know how to make a watch. I, I, I don't want a dissertation on the atomic clock. I, I don't want a lecture on time zones. I, I don't want a big philosophical conversation on what is time and how do you define it and what isn't time and all that kind of... I just want to know what time it is. It's what I need to know. Jesus tells us what we need to know. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying, look... If what you're looking for is someone with the power to bring life out of death, physically at the end of all things, spiritually, life out of dead love, life out of dead hope, life out of dead joy, life out of dead dreams, if what you're looking for is one who has the power to bring life out of death, let me save you some time. That would be me. I am the resurrection and the life. You see how this works? He then says, I'm the bread of life. Isn't that cool? Not one of the breads. I'm the bread. 
And he's not denying with that statement that there are other forms of bread. And I don't mean pumpernickel and rind. Do you want white or wheat for your sandwich? I'm talking about the various kinds of breads in this world that we feast on, feed on, chase all over the place all of the time. And we all do it. The bread of sex, the bread of money, the bread of success, the bread of status, the bread of this, the bread of that, and the other thing. The bread of marriage, the bread of children, the bread of having your children grow up and, you know, go. Or maybe just get a job. All of these things that we think will give us life. And so many of the stories of our lives, in fact, all of the stories of all of our lives, to some degree or another, is the story of you and I chasing after the breads of this world, thinking that in them we will find the life that we're looking for, the satisfaction that we're looking for, the fulfillment that we're looking for, and with everyone we're disappointed, with everyone we think, this is finally it. Tonight I go to bed full, and tomorrow I will wake up full. And we wake up empty and disappointed because we thought this was it. And Jesus is like, hey, whoa, if you just ask me what time it is, theologically speaking, I'll tell you, I'm it. I'm not a bread. I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the light of the world. And that brings us to the I am statement that we're going to look at tonight, which is from John 14, 6. It's probably the one in which the definite article plays the biggest role. The little word, the. Listen to what he says. Jesus Christ says, I am the way. And I am the truth. And I am the life. And then he says, and no one comes to the Father. What does that mean? Nobody comes to know the Father. Nobody comes to experience the Father. Nobody comes to enjoy the Father. Nobody comes to receive from the Father that which we're all looking for and, quite frankly, need. Abundant, fulfilling life in this life, even amidst our sorrows. And eternal life in the next. I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Man, when you ask Jesus what time it is theologically speaking, He just gives it to you. And it's very helpful, but it's a little distressing as well, isn't it? I mean, you start thinking, well, hey, wait a minute, all right. So then if Jesus is the... Key word, right? Definite article. You learned that tonight. That's cool, isn't it? The way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, well, Tom, then what do you do with all the other ways? I mean, so-called ways. What do you do with all the other religions? Don't you have to ask that question? A lot of you guys here tonight have already asked that question. You worked through this. You're thinking to yourself, great reminder. Thank you very much. I'm really happy. I'm ready to sing Silent Night and light my candle. Tom, do you know what time it is? And... And I don't, and I'm not going to look, but now that I've planted that seed in your mind, I know that you will, so keep it to yourself. But look, others are sincerely going, wow, that is a good question. I mean, Tom, what do you do? I mean, are you telling me that this God who created, you know, thousands of different kinds of birds and thousands of different kinds of fish and flowers and grasses and trees and rocks and stones and geography and colors and... I mean, people, all of these, diff- clearly he's into diversity. He's created one way to him. No, I'm not saying that. Jesus Christ, God himself, standing in the flesh in the middle of this world, is saying that. 
He's saying that. And when you begin to look at some of the other ways, really, I mean, look at them, you become thankful that he did. It's helpful. It's what you need to know because what you realize when you begin to compare and contrast them, that there is absolutely no possible way that all of these other so-called ways are ways to the same Father that Jesus is talking about or are then ways to the same some other God that Jesus apparently isn't talking about because they are so radically diverse. I'm going to give you just a couple of examples. Islam, Judaism, and Christianity teach that there is one God. Hinduism, 300 million gods. Confucianism, no God. What do you do with that? I mean, like, where do you go from there? doesn't work. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam believe in a personal God. Buddhism denies the existence of a personal God. That's problematic. A form of Judaism denies life after death. Christianity affirms it. Islam affirms it. And just look at the blood of their martyrs. They write their affirmation of life after death in the blood of their people. But that illustrates yet another irreconcilable difference. Why? It's a difference of good versus evil, of right versus wrong, and of how do you define those things? I mean, it's become almost commonplace in our day to come home from work and sit down on the couch or school or whatever and turn on the television and here, take in this story. I know it's Christmas Eve, but just hang with me. Take in this story about some radical Muslim who's put bombs on his body and gone, you know, into some public place, a restaurant, a bus station, a bus, whatever, and not, and blown not just himself up, but everybody else with him, took as many people with him as he possibly could in a supreme act of devotion and good from his perspective that he will be rewarded for forever in the afterlife. That's good. It's right. But not according to Christianity, it isn't. And if we can't agree on right and wrong and on good and evil, we have a real problem. Because the most fundamental difference, and this is one where you can parcel Christianity off, between the world religions... And Christianity is this, that the world religions, with the exception of Christianity, teach that if you are going to come to know the Father, to use this language, to experience Him, to enjoy Him, and to receive from Him that which you truly need, abundant, satisfying life in this life and eternal life in the next, assuming that there is a Father, that there is a personal God, that there is one God, get the idea? But if you are going to do that, you have to earn that from the God figure. How? By being a good person who lives a good life. But what is good? How do you define that? Who decides? Quite a quandary, isn't it? I mean, the reality is good differs from person to person. It differs from religion to religion. It differs from nation to nation. It differs from culture to culture. Hey, you know what? I can't even agree with myself sometimes on what good is. Can you? And it changes, doesn't it? I mean, I look back at some of the things that I called good when I was 15, and like, I'm mortified. I look back at some of the things that I called bad when I was 15, like, for example, work. And I call that good now. Well, what is it? How can you be a good person if you don't know what good is? How can you live a good life if there is no standard? What do you do with that? Oh, and by the way, how much good do you have to do? I mean, assuming you can define it, then how much of it do you need to do to qualify? Is it 51% good? Is it 60%? Is it 75%? Does adolescence count? 
I spent four years in a fraternity at Florida State University. How much good do I now need to do? Because inquiring minds want to know. How do you know? You don't. Leaves you despairing. All of these world religions, with the exception of Christianity, teach that if you're going to, to use the language of the night, to know the Father, enjoy the Father, experience the Father, and receive from the Father, man, that's what you need and are looking for. Life that is abundant in this world. Eternal life in the next. Well, then you have to earn it by being a good person who lives a good life. But you're going to go about trying to do that, not knowing what the definition of good is, not knowing how much good you have to do, and not knowing who in the end gets to decide. I mean, it's not you, right? You don't decide. Somebody's the judge. Christianity and Christmas has a much clearer message. And one that I think really resonates profoundly with the inner witness of our own hearts. See, Christianity comes along and says, okay, there is a standard of good and... And it is a standard of good to which God holds all of us accountable. And you know what? I think we kind of know that. That's why we feel guilty sometimes. When we do something wrong, we kind of know it. Why? Because the Lord Himself has written His law upon our hearts, and He's given us a conscience. It's why we find ourselves apologizing, not just to our husband or to our wife or to our kids or to somebody that we've stolen from or wronged in some way, but we find ourselves in our more honest moments even apologizing to the Almighty Himself. It's like, I know there's a right and a wrong. I know that there's a standard, and I know that He holds me accountable to that standard. There's a standard of good. He holds us accountable to it. And the standard, good that you're seated, is God Himself. And how could it be otherwise? I mean, it's logically untenable that it could be otherwise. God in His person defines good. How could He then accept any definition of good other than that. It's His righteousness. It's His holiness. It is the perfections of God Himself, which is reflected in His law, that is the definition of good, the standard to which He holds us, all of us accountable. So here's the deal. If from conception to death, in thought, word, and deed, you are as good as God, you're good to go. If not, join the rest of us and be thankful that there is such a thing as Christmas. Because on Christmas, guys, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the infinite God made man, entered into our humanity to save us from ourselves. It's like he brokered a deal with the Father and said, look, I'm looking at my people and they aren't meeting the standard. So here's the deal. I'm going to go in as one of them, and I'm going to meet the standard for them. And having then lived the perfectly good life, I am going to offer my perfectly good life as a substitute for their sinful lives. And I'm going to wash away their sin with my blood on the cross. That's Christmas too. That's what that's all about. So that through faith in Him, what do we get? 
We get what we're looking for from the Father. We get to know Him, to enjoy Him, to experience Him, to receive from Him, satisfying, fulfilling, abundant life in this life, even amidst all our troubles and sorrows as we plug into Him and eternal life in the next. And why do we get it? Because He lived the truly good life in our place for us. And one of the many things that I love about our Lord, and there are a lot, is that He doesn't beat around the bush. You know, it's like you come to this issue and ask Him what time it is. He's like, okay, look, I got an answer. This is going to be quick. might want to write it down. Oh, you don't have to. It's in the Bible. John 14, 6. Here we go. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When you work it through, that is an absolutely glorious message. And that's Christmas. That's Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we praise You for the One who came, that He might live the perfect life that You require of us, and die the sinner's death that we deserved, that we might in Him have life, and life abundantly and eternally. And God, I praise You that many people here tonight know that Jesus and have come to sing to Him. Um, but Lord, if there are others for whom You have made that clear, then God, I pray that You would just lead them by Your Spirit to humble themselves before You and to acknowledge that, you know what, they're not perfect and that's a problem but it's a problem that you have dealt with through Jesus. I pray that they would confess their need for Christ and receive Him as their Savior and Lord and know the forgiveness that He alone brings. God, we thank You that You have come, that You have offered rescue and affected our rescue in Jesus and that You didn't make it unclear. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Merry Christmas.